Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But first, let's talk about BC's debt. And at one time, the province was a leader when it came to the lowest per capita debt in the country. That was then. This is now. And no matter what your opinion is about the Fraser Institute... The Fraser Institute is out with a report which is worth noting, and it says our debt load right now is booming. Well, Ben Eisen is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and the author of that report. He joins us now. Good afternoon. And Ben, you know, you've got to start with the one obvious question. Why is this an issue worth researching, let alone talking about in B.C. right now? Well, British Columbia has gone through a pretty lengthy period relative to a number of other provinces of adding uh, less public debt throughout most of the, the first 20 years anyway uh, of, of the century. Uh, but what we find in looking at the government's forecast for the years ahead is that the government is, is about to start adding substantially more debt in the future than it has at any point in recent history. Uh, and it's going to see that record of relatively low levels of debt accumulation uh, come to an end if the government's forecasts come to pass. And specifically what we look at in this study is comparing the amount of debt the government's expecting over the next three years to some previous periods where we know that lots of debt was added and for some important reasons. We compare it to the 2008-09 financial crisis when there was a steep recession, as well as the years in, in, during, uh, during the COVID pandemic, 2020 and 2021. And we find that the government is planning to add much more debt over the next few years than during those two historical episodes, which we think of as periods that there was an awful lot of debt, and good reasons for it was steep, was steep recession. COVID had very little to do with this, right? Oh, absolutely. The, the COVID recession had something to do with that previous period. Uh, there was a debt increase in 20, 2020, particularly, uh, when the economy was much slower, uh, and there was a number of factors that were causing a debt run-up uh, in those years. But the debt run-up we're about to have, which is substantially greater, no, COVID spending is not a meaningful part of that. The vast majority uh, of one-time emergency COVID spending has been wound up by now. What we're looking at now that's, got, that's driving the big increase in spending that we've seen that in the years ahead is expected to lead lots of debt, uh, that's day-to-day spending on other things. It's not related to the COVID pandemic in any meaningful way. Now, many people would point out, uh, Ben, I understand that. The Fraser Institute doesn't like debt, and they always say this, but they don't have any real understanding of social issues and what's needed in order to govern for people. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I think that what I would say is that looking through Canadian history and particularly uh, particularly recent uh, activities of various governments in Canada, there's not clear evidence that all of the additional spending that we've seen in recent years is translating into dramatically better public services. Uh, you look at what's happened, for example, one of the core responsibilities of, uh, of the provincial government is the education system, uh, whereas PISA scores have been dropping in recent years. There's no clear evidence of dramatic re- reductions in wait times. So if there was this increase in spending that was driving debt could be tied directly to very clear in public, uh, improvements in public services, that could be a conversation what w- was worth having. Is this trade-off worth it? As it is, we're seeing this big increase in the size of government, the big increase in the number of people working for uh, the provincial government, which has increased very dramatically in in recent years. And certainly, uh, whether or not that's 
connected to improved results. Uh, well, if, if there was evidence, then we could have a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, but for now, I think it's incumbent when the government is spending so much more, uh, having so much more debt, uh, to demonstrate value for money. And this report shows one half of that equation, that the amount of spending is way up and that the amount of debt is dramatically higher. Well, let's pull out some of the examples. You mentioned the size of government. Where is that size increasing that you see really contributing to this debt growth? Well, there's a number of, of factors. The, the big areas of public spending uh, at the provincial level are, are health and education, but we're also seeing a substantial increase in the size of the public service in British Columbia. Uh, that's increased dramatically in recent years. Uh, so it's not just uh, directly into services. There's also uh, growth in the size of uh, the size of government, and we've done past research showing uh, a meaningful wage premium in British Columbia for the public service compared to employees in the private sector. So if that's continuing, and we have more and more people working for government uh, at a wage that is uh, not competitive but higher uh, than comparable jobs in the private sector, that's also a contributor to the big increase in spending. And when we broke down the numbers and looked at what's driving the debt increase that we've talked about, it's absolutely spending. Uh, that's causing this. It's not a deterioration of revenue uh, or anything of that nature. It's more spending uh, leading to the emergence of deficits in the years ahead, uh, and that's contributing to the large runoff in that. So it begs an obvious question. What's going on here in B.C.? Is it something related to population growth or something different than the rest of the country? What are we seeing in other provinces, and how can we compare that to this province? Well, we're certainly seeing more rapid spending growth. Exactly what's causing it, that's, a, that's largely a function of government decision-making uh, and the prioritization of governments deciding how much they want to prioritize more public spending versus how much uh, they want to prioritize spending restraint for the sake of limiting deficits. Uh, so th- that, that's the most important. The other provinces, uh, Ontario has a deficit, for example, uh, but not nearly the size and the increase in debt that we're seeing in British Columbia. What's happening in British Columbia today in terms of the rate of debt accumulation, is much more similar to what happened in Ontario in the years following the 2008-09 financial crisis. Then and there, Ontario, uh, its manufacturing sector took a very serious blow. Revenue went down. They didn't match that with spending uh, reductions. And so debt exploded, which is an issue that they're still dealing with to to this day over in Ontario. In British Columbia, what's happening now, we're seeing a run-up in debt uh, that's very similar to what happened in Ontario way back then. Uh, But what's an important difference is back then there was uh, approximate cause. There was a steep recession. There was a fundamental restructuring of the provincial economy. There was a downturn in revenue. Uh, all those things were contributing to the big increase in debt. In British Columbia, those things aren't happening. There's simply an increase in spending that's driving the debt growth that we're uh, that we show in today's report, and that that's contributing to all of the debt accumulation that's going to happen in the years ahead. You mentioned years going back in the past and where we are right now. And quite often, I take a look at the bond rating agencies to see what their tolerance level is for the debt. It's not that uh, terrible when it comes to BC. So how do you figure that uh, we are in a situation where we should be concerned? This is a really important point. Uh, Debt uh, debt ratings from uh, bond markets, those are a function of a number of things. Current government policy and forecasts are one of those. Uh, But what's happened in the past is also a very important factor because government's ability to take on new debt uh, is is affected by things that have happened on the past. And what we saw in British Columbia is between 2000 and around 2016, we saw one of the slowest rates of per-person inflation-adjusted spending growth in the country. Uh, It was about 0.5% annualized uh, for that very long period of time. And what that led to was, while a number of other provinces were seeing a big increase in debt, British Columbia was holding its debt uh, either steady or, in fact, reducing it in some years, which meant that the size of the debt relative to the overall economy was shrinking. So Alberta was running up a lot of debt. Ontario was running up a lot of debt. 
Uh, British Columbia wasn't. British Columbia was holding the line for a long time. And so that created uh, some fiscal uh, runway, so to speak. It created some room, whereas now we're, we're increasing debt and that is being eaten up. So yes, right now, the overall fiscal outlook in terms of bond ratings is, is relatively favorable. Uh, but if we see this kind of increase in debt over the course of many years, uh, that can change. And we saw it change in Ontario when, when there was a downgrade. Uh, several downgrades, in fact, during the worst of their debt run-up, things have improved somewhat. Uh, but in British Columbia, the, the point is not to say that uh, they're on a, we're on the brink of a crisis in British Columbia, uh, that bond markets are on the brink of turning on the province. That's not where we are. But what we're doing is we're eating in uh, to, the, to the amount of room, to the runway that we had, and that's leaving British Columbia less prepared for it if there is another emergency in the future, like COVID or like a recession. And what's more, regardless of whether people are willing to lend to BC, which is what you say, which is what you point to correctly as an important measure, uh, the bond markets. The reality is still even so, British Columbians still have to pay all of the interest on that debt, and that is increasing in the years ahead uh, with interest rates being higher. So it's not at all costless. You're right. The indicator you're pointed to shows that British Columbia is by no means on the brink of a crisis, uh, but that doesn't mean that what we're seeing is costless. It's going to cost British Columbian taxpayers money right away, and in the future, it could leave the province much less well prepared uh, to deal with any kind of emergency that does arise. I'm Bruce Claggett. We've been talking about BC's coming debt boom. Ben Eisen is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and an author on a report released today about this. Ben, you think about single moms living in basement suites, uh, people on wait lists waiting for operations, and those who can't even afford post-secondary education. Why would the average BCer give a tinker's damn about provincial debt? That, that's a great question. The answer to that is, is simply that as governments accumulate debt, uh, interest has to pay, be paid on it. And that's particularly true uh, in the higher interest rate environment that we're in now versus the periods that we've been in in the past. And as, so what we're seeing is the interest rate payments are growing meaningfully throughout the rest of the government's fiscal plan. So why does that matter? It means that money that's going into provincial coffers needs to be diverted to debt service payments that could otherwise be used for things for other priorities to help families like the ones you discussed simply to lower taxes to help uh, families uh, pay their bills and things like that. And we've seen that through Canadian history, just how significant that that can become. Like you said, we're not on the brink of it today, but in the 1990s, for example, we reached the point where the federal government, about one in every $3 that came into federal coffers was going uh, to service and government debt. Uh, That's money that was unavailable for other priorities. And regardless of whether you're left, right, or center, most people would rather see their tax dollars going to something uh, whether it's tax relief, whether it's public services, other than debt service payments. Many provinces, it was a similar situation. It was about one in five dollars of debt interest that was going uh, from the uh, from 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 the province and every every excuse me, one in five uh, tax dollars going to provincial governments was being spent on debt service. So it was huge chunks of every dollar being sent in that was unavailable for other things. So if British Columbians care about competitive taxes that take less of their paycheck, if they care about high quality public services, which of course all of the, all of them do, uh, then being concerned about the rise in debt is, is important because it's taking away money and debt service payments that could go towards those important priorities. But it is not a policy issue that is really resonating with any of the political parties right now. There are things that are just higher on the agenda. How come this is not a priority for any political party? Uh, I think there's a number of reasons. Public finance deals in, in, in very large uh, numbers. That's one of it. Uh, when you, For example, a debt charges in BC in 2022 uh, are, were about $2.7 billion for the year. So that's going to go up to about $4.4 billion by 2526. So from 2.7 to $4.4 billion. But for everyone, uh, for, unless you study public finance, 
for a living, those basically just seem like two large numbers. It's hard to imagine exactly what does that mean for me that it's gone from 2.7 to 4.4 billion. Uh, we're, we're dealing in such large numbers, even though it's a 60% increase, we can sort of eyeball that. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how that's going to affect you. So that's why hopefully uh, by breaking these things down and explaining things like uh, it's going to rise to $726 per person in debt interest payments by the end of the, the fiscal period and much more uh, per tax filer, for example, uh, that's 36%, 36% more. Uh, hopefully that helps uh, communicate these things. But I think one reason is just that, that public finance deals in large figures. Uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it becomes almost abstract when we talk about billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and there's so much government spin around the size of deficits and things like that. But it can be hard to cut through and think about, as you asked, why does this matter to me? But it really does uh, once you get to the point where we're talking about thousands of dollars per family going to debt service payments that could go towards other things. Taxation is often an issue that comes up, but we hardly ever talk about it in relation to payment of debt. How big a factor is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it? It's an important factor, and it's one that can grow very quickly. Um, it, it, British Columbia has benefited uh, for, in recent years by having a lowered amount of the government revenue that was going uh, going from taxes uh, to pay government debt, but it's going up, as we're discussing today. And as we've, we've discussed, uh, it can spiral quickly. If you have a large deficit and interest rates are going up and you're unable to take immediate action to deal with it, then more and more gets consumed, and there's no two ways about it. You have a choice between uh, cutting spending, raising, raising taxes, or borrowing even more just to cover uh, debt interest payments. So taxes are very closely linked. In the end, all of this money, all the interest that goes to debt service, it has to come from somewhere. And that somewhere is always going to be taxpayers. There's no way around it. Uh, so the link between uh, growing debt now, that's essentially taxes in the future. I think that's an important way for us to think about deficits mm. and debt. They're not just an abstract concept. They're actually taxes. They're just not taxes that we're paying now. They're taxes that we're kicking down the, kicking down the road, either to be paid by us in the future or by subsequent generations. So nothing's free, uh, and certainly all of this debt is. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for being with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Now, according to Wikipedia, that great source of all things information, Blue Monday is the name given to a day in January said to be the most depressing day of the year. The concept was first published back in 2005 in a media release from Sky Travel, which is a UK travel company, and it claimed to have calculated the date using an equation, that equation taking into things like into account things like weather in the northern hemisphere, but also a time after Christmas where you had such a great big high and now there are the mundane lows ahead. And many of us also note that it has been a long time to the next statutory holiday. Well, there are other things that play into it, like your finances, the money you have. And in fact, our next guest, Shannon Terrell, a financial expert and spokesperson for Nerd Wallet Canada, points out that... Uh, you know, when you start to take a look at some of the bills, 
Blue Monday really is that day where you have to kind of take a reckoning or kind of account for what you did back in December. So, Shannon, Blue Monday, money, big part or not so big a part? Absolutely. So January can be quite challenging for a lot of folks. You know, it is a combination of factors. So, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're dealing with the short days, the long nights. Maybe the weather isn't so great. But the reality is we are no longer caught up in a lot of the busyness that comes with the holidays. And instead, we are greeted with the aftermath of it all. And typically that comes in the form of a large credit card bill. Yeah, we got all the gifts. Now it's time to pay the piper, isn't it? That's exactly right. So what does that mean? You start to see the bills. What do you do? And how do you get out of the funk? Yes. So, you know, I'll say one of the hardest things about January is that first credit card bill of the new year. And in fact, a NerdWallet Canada survey found that half of Canadians who shopped during last year's holiday season took on credit card debts. And of that group, 25% had yet to pay it off as they entered the 2023 holiday season. So if you're in that group and you find yourself struggling to pay off that high interest credit card debt, I encourage people to consider what's called a balance transfer credit card. I have to point out that 75% do pay it off. Wow, that surprises me. That's (laughs) That's exactly right. So although we have over 50% of folks taking on that credit card debt, we are seeing that 75% of the group are being diligent in paying down that credit card debt. And ultimately, staying on top of those bills is the best way to set yourself up in the new year for financial success. What is a balanced transfer credit card? Sure. So a balanced transfer credit card is a credit card that has a promotional period with a low interest rate, sometimes as low as 0%. But this only lasts for a designated period of time, so typically about 6 to 12 months. So what you do is you transfer your existing credit card debt to one of these cards, And then you pay down your debt without having to incur a lot of interest. Now, this is especially effective because every penny could potentially be going towards that outstanding balance. Shannon, effective, but I think it also takes discipline because you're not going to get a reminder when the rates or the promotional period for any of these things comes to an end. So you have to make a note, don't you? That's exactly right. So I would say there's there's two caveats for balance transfer credit cards. The first we just touched on is the promotional period. That promotional period will not last forever. And once it's over, the card is going to revert back to its normal interest rate. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to think about are fees. So you want to be on the lookout for a balance transfer fee. That's a fee that's charged for moving your balance from one credit card to another And in most cases, it's a percentage of the transfer amount, typically about 1% to 3%. So definitely be checking the fine print for that. When it comes to budgeting, and of course, it's the new year, so we're always thinking of new and better ways to do it. But there isn't one best approach. No, there really isn't. So there's no one size fits all when it comes to budgeting. But I will say for folks who are entering the new year and they want to try out a budget, there are some popular options. So One I'll mention is the 50-30-20 approach. It's pretty popular. This is where you allocate 50% of your income to necessary expenses like food, shelter, 30% 
goes towards discretionary spending. So that's your dining out, your entertainment. And then that final 20%, that's going to go towards your savings and your investments. But again, I'll mention no one size fits all. And there's plenty of ways to get ahead in the new year financially. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like some discipline still involved there. You know, I have friends that post about this on social media, the the dry months where they go without booze. Well, there is also a notion that you have that's called a no-spend month. Tell me about that. Sure. So as you touched on, this is almost like dry January, where people refrain from consuming alcoholic beverages for the month of January. Well, instead of eliminating alcoholic beverages, we're eliminating the non-essential spending. You know, we're talking about food delivery, renting digital movies, buying clothes. You know, I think during the holidays, a lot of us get into the habit of swiping the credit card or clicking through the online shopping experience, and it can be a really slippery slope. So if you set January as a no-spend month, it's basically acting as a reset, and that's going to help you financially reorient yourself in the new year. If we're looking at timelines, how long does it usually take the average person to recover from the big spending month of December? Do we know? So we don't have hard data on that, but like we said, we did see 25% of folks who were entering the 2023 shopping season having not yet paid off the credit card debt. So it's really not all that uncommon. But again, if we're strategic about how we handle our finances, there's no reason that we can't pay off that debt in the new year, and set ourselves up for success going forward. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. Happy New Year, by the way. Wireless phone plans going up for thousands of Canadians. Not all, but many of the Canadian customers for Rogers and Bell will be shelling out more. Rogers will increase the cost of some of its plans this month, and Bell reportedly is going to be increasing... It's existing wireless phone plan prices in February. And uh, this comes as a surprise to us. I don't know. But I do know that there was talk about competition and talk about surviving in a competitive market. And there was more of a microscope on companies like Rogers and Shaw with the merger that they went through that was approved last year. What's going on here? Well, let's get to the bottom of this by bringing in John Lawford, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre in Ottawa. Easy for you to say, John. Uh, Good afternoon. What's going on? Thanks. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, Well, price increases uh, for wireless uh, is what's going on and, and for some internet services, too. You know, I thought that we were under some sort of agreement, especially when it comes to Rogers, that we would not be seeing any of these increases. Is it just a matter of shifting the words or shifting the divisions or plans? And I know it's not all customers, but hey, guess what? This is coming into play. Absolutely it is. You've got, uh, well, you had the CEO of uh, Rogers saying the prices would go down, but he's pretty vague about it. I think he meant on like a 20-year time time frame and not in one year and you've got the minister uh champagne wanting to have prices go down but really only making rules for videotron about what their prices should be for their freedom products so 
Yeah, it's not working out too well because there's nothing enforceable. And we've got today, yeah, 7 to $9 price increase for Rogers and uh, 6 for Bell. So Canadians, are we the suckers and the policymakers just approving whatever corporations and the big telecoms want? Well, i got to say, when the Rogers and Shaw merger was announced, we were concerned at our group about price increases. And to be honest, every uh, year this time of year, the wireless carriers, because there's only really three big ones, do raise prices. And it's usually 4 or $5. And the thing that shocked me this time around was the 7 to $9, which is really, you know, a large jump. It's, uh, for me, for example, mine's going up uh, about 8% of my entire bill. So, you know, it's kind of unappreciated. If you don't have a contract, and especially some of those who are kind of paying month to month to month, they're the ones that are going to be hit the hardest, aren't they? Yes, and for people that do have a plan, uh, like a two-year plan, often they've got a phone that they are financing as well, there won't be a price change for those people because they're protected by the CRTC wireless code. So you don't have to worry until your renewal date, but prices in the market will be higher then. Now, John, in your work as Executive Director, General Counsel of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre in Ottawa, uh, how do you advocate for Canadians that are perhaps struggling with their bills to begin with, but especially their cell phone bills, uh, and hearing story after story of promises that, you know what, it's going to be okay, we're going to look after your interests for these companies, and yet... This news comes out. What do you do to advocate for them? Well, you have to make this work in three places. First of all, the government has to be actually um, strong on this and and keep policies in play and keep the governments in uh, keep excuse me the companies in check. But the CRTC, the regulator, also has to make the conditions for new carriers work, um, and they haven't done a perfect job of that. I have to admit. You know, and, and and then lastly, we as consumers have to switch, you know, and if you if you don't like your carrier or you got a price increase, you got to take a chance on somebody else, move your account around, um, because that's what gets the companies lowering prices, not not sitting there and hoping they're going to give you a better deal. They might give you more data, but they're not going to change the price downwards. Have we failed in being able to, as people advocating for, better prices and better conditions for consumers. Have we failed in being able to get the message across that perhaps Canadians are already paying too much and that this is a real issue of concern? I think people need to focus their energy, whether that's through political action, like getting a, a political party or their MP on this issue and saying this is their number one or number two issue. You know, I know there's food price increases as well, but this is a staple uh, just as much. Um, or, you know, they're going to have to uh, to self-organize or organize around um, any groups they're already part of, like seniors groups or goodness, they can contact us and, and try to make the voice a little bit more focused because everybody grumbles about this at, you know, parties and when they're on the bus and stuff, but nobody <laughs> uh, gets together to make it a one voice. It's got to be exhausting when you appear before panels or appear before bodies like the CRTC or competition uh, bodies taking a look at this. Because remember, that merger that we talked about went through several federal bodies and was carefully examined, and it still passed. And yet, at the same time, Canadians are on track to be paying more money for the same sort of service. Yeah, it's frustrating, and we we did oppose the merger from the start, and I know lots of people, individuals, uh, also opposed it. 
um, like I said, you've got to get this kind of complicated machine to work together. That's the CRTC and, and the um, and the, the Minister of uh, Her- uh, Industry, excuse me, to, to do the right thing. Um, and then you need people pressuring. So it is frustrating, and we feel like we're telling the same tale year after year, uh, and warning about these things, especially the Competition Bureau, who did challenge the merger, right, but they lost. There's one silver lining I'll give you, though, and that's that the competition law has been changed in the last month to make it harder for companies to merge. So that's one silver lining. Yeah, for the future, and who knows, that's way down the line for some of these, and I'll give you that one. There's also the other side of this, and it comes to performance and agreements for for performance and being able to measure that. And Mm -hmm. Canadians have repeatedly expressed concerns with things like having speeds throttled, some of them have been proven to be true, by the way. Some of these uh, uh, complaints are actually uh, are, are valid. And yet the companies tend to do very little about it. Also, when things break down and there is no service and no response, where there is a blackout for service for what mm-hmm. could be a day or two. Yep. Yet this doesn't seem to be taken into consideration when it comes to approval, ultimately, by the federal government. Yeah, there's a lot of outages and and um, and uh, bad coverage. These sorts of problems, quality service issues, and like right outside of pricing. But you know, the, the companies are making you know, pretty much record profits and giving their shareholders tons of money. And, and I, I think that more could be done to make them reinvest so that we have fewer outages, you know, and better coverage and faster services. Even if we don't get the price down as fast, at least some of the money could go to that. You know, so I, I hear what you're saying. You know, Canada is a country with a whole bunch of topography and very few people per uh, per square kilometer. When you take a look at Europe and other countries, even the United States, perhaps there is an argument that could be said that it's easier to provide cell phone service when you have more people, more customers in an area. Do you buy that as the argument for Canada being one of the most expensive places in the world to have cell phone service? Uh, well, we have our weather challenges, but you know, Bruce, I don't buy it because Canada is actually more dense for where people live. We live along the border, to be honest, uh, except for some northern cities and some, some regional centers. Um, the United States is actually more spread out than Canada in terms of coverage. So I don't buy it. Um, I do think there are some challenges with, with northern service and with uh, getting rural service back hauled to you know, Vancouver or whatever. But, you know, those are solvable problems. We need, we need to do better. There certainly is in the U.S. a lot of amalgamation of companies uh, that has happened over the years. I would argue that their competition laws still are stronger, but there has Mm -hmm. been amalgamation of companies. And yet the cell phone coverage seems to me to be so much better. I often point out to the fact that I took a trip from Phoenix, Arizona in my car, uh, going all the way up through Nevada into Idaho. And anyone that knows that geography knows there's a lot of dead space with very few people living Mm -hmm. between Las Vegas and Boise for hours. And you know what? There was 5G service for almost the entire route. And to me, yep. in, an era, in a country that basically doesn't really have anything but a system that is corporately driven, that's great service. Why can't Canada do something very close to that, even for customers that are going through areas of our own province here in B.C.? 
Well, I'm hopeful, actually, on this one, um, that if we get a little bit more investment from Videotron and they get their Freedom product covering more of, of these areas, as, you know, if they get a, a break from the regulator, we can do that. Because the U.S. market, what people don't know is, for a long time, they had four players. And during that period, that's when that build-out happened. And they went back to three, unfortunately, recently. But during that dynamic period, they got a lot of build. And we could do the same now if, if Videotron gets into this in a big way and consumers start to switch. So so we'll see. I'm not going to write it off, but I, I, I feel the pain. John, are you optimistic that there can be some progress towards cell phone service for the average Canadian in 2024 and beyond? Well, I'll say and beyond. Uh, I think we've been pretty consistent in saying with, with the concentration we have now with Rogers and, and you know, Videotron just starting to crawl its way into the game. Uh, we're looking at five or ten years of really tough slogging for consumers, and I don't see prices going down. I see data buckets going up. I see maybe services becoming faster, but, you know, I, I think you've got to put a, some money aside for your cell phone for quite some time. It is 2024, and there's going to be more talk about carbon pricing this year. And I say that noting that Policy Options has a good piece in it. What is Policy Options? Well, it is a digital magazine of the Institute for Research on Public Policy. And in it, Trevor Toome and Jennifer Winter write that rising inflation has put a significant financial strain on many households. They go on to say in October of 2023, for example... Average consumer prices were more than 15% higher than they were immediately before COVID. Essential items such as shelter and food have seen sharp rises, about 20% for uh, shelter, 23% for food. That's over the past three years. At the same time, as we know, Canadian governments, federal, provincial and territorial, have increased the stringency of their climate policies and... They point out some people have drawn a connection between these two facts, suggesting that climate policies such as carbon taxes are behind recent affordability challenges. Well, maybe there's a continuum and to what degree they might be. Uh, I don't know if it's yes or no, but let's get to the bottom of this with one of those authors, Trevor Toome, who is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thanks for joining us. Really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, our pleasure uh, pleasure is all mine. And I really am glad to see somebody has taken a look at this and uh, made some of the connections between what we say when it comes to some of these taxes, and what may in fact be true. So, what have you found? Well, we took the latest data from Statistics Canada that not only tracks how much we spend on a variety of goods and services throughout our day-to-day life, but also how much energy and other inputs each of those goods requires, and so on up the supply chain. So, carbon taxes are intentionally meant to increase the price of things that emit greenhouse gases, and that's, for the most part, fuels when we burn them. And so that obviously affects um, individuals purchasing gasoline or natural gas and so on, but it also affects businesses because it raises costs and, and whatnot. So the logic being put forward by some to say that the reason for the rising prices that we're seeing in Canada is carbon taxes is It has a flavor of truth to it, but the quantity, the magnitude of the effect is really quite small. So what we wanted to do is 
put some numbers on that. So for BC, uh, we find that food, for example, to take one of the items, is about 0.3% higher in price on average compared to what it would be in the absence of a carbon tax. So that's much, much smaller than the over 20% increase in food prices that we've seen over the past year and a half. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, some of these increases are just a matter of, I think it's more someone saying, why should we see any increase right now when we've got so many other inflationary pressures? So there's that. But also, uh, there are those rebates. And I think the question comes down to, are the rebates actually fixing anything or are they kind of just being thrown out willy-nilly? Well, great question. So these rebates are not a refund of carbon taxes that we pay, right? We're not keeping our receipts and itemizing all the carbon taxes that we pay and submitting it for a, for a refund to the government. It's, it's really a lump sum of cash that goes to individuals and families directly uh, each quarter to your bank account, depending on what account you use to follow your taxes. And for most households, that rebate is higher than the overall amount of carbon taxes that each household pays. It addresses the affordability concern that carbon taxes might create in the form of higher prices by increasing people's income. And, and whether, for, whether for you or for me or any given individual, the rebate does actually increase our income more than what we spend in carbon taxes, that depends on how much energy we use. Yeah, um, and I don't know if the rebates uh, go to relieving some of that or if we take it and we spend the money on smokes and lottery tickets. Well, it, it really yeah. doesn't matter to me <laughs> at all at the end of the day. It's just a matter of we're getting a rebate for something that is it actually working. Well, the intent of the carbon tax is to raise the price of some goods more than others, uh, the emissions-intensive goods more than not, in order to create an incentive to change behavior. And the rebate is a lump sum. You could spend it on, as you say, whatever you want, Um, popcorn, uh, beer, movie tickets, whatever. And to the extent that you're not recycling that additional income all into buying more fuel, then the behavioral change is such that emissions do decline. And BC is an interesting example where we have about 15 years, uh, a little over that, of data on broad-based carbon pricing and researchers have indeed found that emissions in BC are about somewhere between 5 to 15 percent lower than emissions would have otherwise have been had BC never implemented its carbon tax in the first place. Now, Professor, I know that this has been a really expensive past year, past three years, I guess, really. And there are so many reasons for that. And many of those reasons may disappear. And we hope that they will disappear. But one thing that is not going to disappear is the carbon tax. And in fact, Mm. we're going to see even more of that. So what you have found in the past, is that not necessarily going to increase uh, the chance or the percentage of your your money that's going to uh, make things more expensive? It's going to be to the carbon tax? It, it will indeed increase all of the effects that we're measuring here. So if we double the value of that carbon tax, uh, then we're roughly doubling the increase in prices that we estimate here. But keep in mind, we're also doubling the rebate as well. And so the, the effect of carbon pricing, our main point is 
that it is not a material factor behind why overall consumer prices have increased over the past year and a half. So if, we're, if we want our governments to tackle the affordability challenge, then eliminating the carbon tax is not itself going to be a way to actually make a big dent in the problem. Now, one can certainly disagree with carbon taxes. Our, our point is not to say that one should uh, support them or, or not. It was really just to crunch the numbers to see what fraction of the overall inflation that we've been seeing can be attributed to things like carbon taxes. Is it outside of the scope of this to even ask a question if the tax would do anything? Oh, in terms of lowering emissions? Of lowering emissions, can you, well, to put it uh, bluntly, can you change the weather by increasing a carbon tax? Well, we can certainly change behavior by creating incentives to do so. And, and we do see that in, you know, not put aside carbon taxes, people and businesses respond to prices. We look at price tags and then we make a decision about whether or not to purchase something or not. And sometimes that is easier to do than other times. So we might have a fixed commute. You know, we don't have a lot of flexibility over our fuel use. But over time, we do make choices around which vehicles to purchase, which appliances to have in our homes, and so on. So carbon taxes are meant just to create that incentive. Uh, and incentives do matter. You know, this is this is at the core of, of economics and, and not just in the realm of environmental policy, but right across the board. Now, again, there's pros and cons to it. You know, it, it uh, is visible and therefore psychologically painful in the same way that the GST is, right? That is not a very popular tax relative to more invisible hidden ones like the corporate income tax. Now, my um, knowledge of economics never went past the first year university level, but I seem to remember <laughs> Economics 101 talking about elastic and inelastic yeah. things. And uh, the question would come up, when it comes to gas, is gas mm -hmm. elastic or inelastic? Meaning, yeah. are people able to cut down or reduce, or is it something that's always going to be a constant in the terms of their need? Great question. And, and indeed, energy in general, gasoline and natural gas in particular, these are inelastic products, which means that a price change is going to lead to a less than proportional change in quantity. But but, and this is important, they're not perfectly inelastic. So behavior of some people can respond, not everybody, but some people in the economy have options to uh, carpool, uh, not drive uh, to the same degree that they do, uh, adopting more fuel-efficient vehicles, right? Not everyone can do that, but some people can. So throughout the whole economy, you do see some behavioral response, but it's not necessarily large, right? And that comes down to, as you note, how elastic the item is. When it comes to these type of taxes, it's not only a question of what's happening in our own country at the local, mm -hmm. provincial, and federal level, but it's happening south of the border when it comes it to is. taxes. It's certainly happening in Europe and around the world. Where yeah. do we stack up in terms of our policies when it comes to taking a stronger approach to carbon taxes. Yeah, so that is important because we are not making policy in a vacuum and we are a small open economy, right? Canada in general. And so that, that means that we need to think about what our trading partners are doing in terms of their 
uh, climate stringency because we would never want a situation where a business shifts activity elsewhere where climate policies are laxer. Uh, so that, then we wouldn't get the emissions benefit globally, and Canada would have an economic cost. So if we look at, say, the European Union, they do have a broad-based carbon price implemented through a, a cap-and-trade system. It's currently trading at about 80 euros uh, per ton. So in Canadian dollar terms, that's about $117 per ton. And for context, you know, we're at 65 right now, going to 80 in April. So the EU does have a higher carbon price. Now, looking at the United States, they have no carbon tax or carbon price at all, but they do have other policies. And that's important to keep in mind. The, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a really... They do have state policies named, when it comes do, to yeah. emissions and mm-hmm. things like in California when it comes exactly. to the automobile. Exactly. That's right. That, they have a cap and trade there. And, and, and that's economy-wide. Quebec is integrated with it as well, for example. So what matters is not the carbon price itself, but the overall of climate policies, and the U.S. has ratcheted up the amount of stringency that it has undertaken. We're and, talking with yeah. uh, economics professor Trevor Toome at University of Calgary. Sorry to interrupt you on that, but I'm curious no, no, no. to know if there's going to be a follow-up to what you wrote about here. Are you doing any more research? What's coming up? We are, we are indeed doing more. So this was just a small snippet of results of what we are putting together, which is going to be a more detailed examination of carbon taxes, byproduct, and alternative measures that governments might want to think about to alleviate affordability concerns. Like BC, for example, its rebate is far less generous than what we see elsewhere in Canada. So BC uh, has, uh, I guess, a bigger, if you will, affordability concern than Alberta does for the same carbon price. We'll be unpacking those kind of details. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for spending time with us and outlining some of your findings here. By the way, it is all contained in the um, Policy Options, which is a digital magazine for the Institute for Research on Public Policy. You can find it. Trevor Toome is the name of one of the two writers. By the way, Trevor Toome is T-O-M-B-E if you're looking it up. Thanks so much, Trevor. Thank you. Take care. Let's talk about the Rolling Stones. No, I, in all seriousness, let's talk about the Stones and the logo that was on the side of City Hall back in November was lit up. It was kind of neat. I saw it. No big deal, I thought at the time. Uh, There was also a social media post from the mayor who was out in front of this, highlighting the fact that the Stones would be coming in tour or adding a Vancouver tour date in the summer, coming up in July. Also, I thought, no big deal. But some people questioned whether money was being spent on doing this. And later it was revealed that no, there was no city money being spent. But now there's this that we have learned today. An unnamed citizen has come forward and is complaining that the mayor, Ken Sim, along with three councillors, including Sarah Kirby Young and Peter Meisner and Mike Clausen, were in a potential conflict of interest and there was a misuse of influence for non-official purposes, all because City Hall was lit up with this... um, You know, the Rolling Stones logo? Yeah, it had it on the side. Well, two of those counselors are with me right now, Sarah Kirby Young and Peter Meisner. Good afternoon to both of you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Happy 2024. 
You know, I, I've got to say, and happy 2024, happy Rolling Stones concert ahead in uh, later on in the summer. Seems so far away now. But, uh, you know, I take a look at complaints like this. It's kind of like beating a dead horse. First, we found out that there was no city money being spent. Okay, so that kind of took what I thought was even a little bit of fuel out of this uh, story. And then we find out today that somebody still finds a conflict of interest. Who wants to take this first? Who shocked the most by it? Uh, Sarah Kirby Young, you're the first one to uh, go forward with this suggestion, were you not? Let's start with you. Uh, yeah, I, I will, I'll happy to kick it off and, and jump in. And uh, when local uh, Balanced Media Group brought this forward on behalf of the concert promoter AEG, uh, they came to the idea and they said, what do you think? And I said, I love it. I think it's great. Um, and I took it to the mayor's office, who then took it to staff. Um, and everybody agreed. I think the important thing here is to remember it is okay to have a culture of fun uh, in the city. It is okay to celebrate. We have serious issues to tackle, absolutely. But uh, we want to uh, build our economy. We want to celebrate. And at the time, uh, when they first contacted me a few months ahead, uh, the Rolling Stones had decided where they were going to go in Canada. And Vancouver... Ultimately, I think in partly due to the enthusiasm that we showed and how excited we were to have them come here, uh, decided to have Vancouver as the only stop here. And it is our job, I think, as councillors to be chief cheerleaders for the city. Um, and it's, it's, it's not only fun, but it's an economic opportunity. People come and they stay in hotels, they spend in restaurants, it creates jobs. Um, and, and again, I think it's I think it's fun. Uh, I think it's building our economy, and I think that we need more of it. And it was dark days of November, and something interesting lit up on City Hall. I think that's kind of cool. Still is the dark days of January, and perhaps, <laughs> you know, you're thinking maybe summer is too far away. Well, this was kind of a reminder. But, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, you know, when Sarah first told me about the opportunity, I was I was pretty excited um, as um, Councillor Kirby Young mentioned, I mean, it really is our job to be promoters of Vancouver. And these big events like concerts and sports events generate so much economic activity for the city. But I think it's fair for the public to question uh, whether or not public funds uh, were being spent on something like this. And, and they weren't. And we were cleared by the Integrity Commissioner. And actually, um, this actually made money. The city made $500 from this. All the fees were covered by the promoter even the power was covered by the promoters so you know this is we get accused of being no fun city all the time and we did something fun and i think you know the majority of vancouverites they want to see more fun things in vancouver and they want to see us champion our cities so uh, i feel good about the outcome and uh, i'm excited to to uh, have them uh, here in the city this summer and host them okay the complaint actually says that the section 4.5 of the code of conduct bylaw is broken by this um, must not use or permit the use of city land facilities or equipment for non-city business. You think it's a stretch? Uh, I'll um, jump in on that one. Yeah, go for it, Sarah. Go. Uh, well, I was going to say, uh, yeah, and Peter, if you want to jump in after, I was going to say I, uh, the Integrity Commission was very clear that this was not a misuse of city property. Um, and in fact, council given direction to staff to look at revenue-generating opportunities. I would also point to the fact that um, city Hall isn't the only city asset that we use. If you look at things like street banners on the Cambry Bridge or Burrard Bridge, those are allowed, to, you're allowed to put up flags for different nonprofits, but also for commercial events. Um, and you often see those coming in. And so, well, I'm sure we'll have banners up on the Cambry and Burrard Bridges for FIFA, for example, which is the largest sporting event in the world. 
it makes money. It's profit. It's celebratory. It's going to be a huge boon to our city in 2026. Um, and I don't think that there's a big distinction between celebrating the Rolling Stones coming uh, for one of their last concerts that they'll be performing, an iconic legendary band and something like FIFA. So um, it's not that we haven't done this before. And I, I, again, I think it's fun and I think we need more of it. I don't know what the argument could be here, but uh, maybe somebody would come forward and say, well, you're not doing it for a Vancouver band this round. Maybe, I don't know, like a, a smaller band, the Paper Boys and Tom Landa or some, someone like that. You're not actually putting up any logo on City Hall. This is a mega group with recognition around the world. Yeah, Bruce, I think, you know, we're, we're certainly open to doing that. And I think, as uh, Sarah mentioned, we are looking at what uh, sort of opportunities uh, we can have in the future uh, to do these sort of activations around the city and hopefully generate revenue as, as we did with this one. So this is really, I think, a test case in a way where we can promote the city, promote economic activity, promote the arts and culture in the city. And, and you know, no public money was used, no public assets um, were being used. So all these costs were covered by the promoters. So um, I think this is, you know, this kind of thing that Vancouverites want to see. They want to see us champion arts and culture and economic activity in Vancouver and bring, you know, great concerts and events to our city. Where is the line? What do you use to decide if it's big enough to be a cultural event that the whole city should know about and have it lit up as a logo? I think we, I mean, we have, uh, we have some pretty good staff that are looking at that. They're working through um, looking at um, opportunities, as I said, and we'll get some policies that are coming back. Um, I think good judgment comes into this. Priority is always given to nonprofits on things like lighting up City Hall um, or the banners on the bridges. And so I think you'll see um, balance in the policies that come forward. And in fact, uh, we had hoped to put the logo up, uh, the big lips, not that you know everybody would recognize as the Rolling Stones the day before the concert announcement, and we couldn't do it because the city hall was booked to be lit up for the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and appropriately and importantly, that took priority and took precedence. So, I think what you'll see is um, a recognition of the importance of providing space for nonprofits um, and providing some balance for some of those signature and fun iconic moments that we want to mark in our city's history. It still gets into a bit of a tough space, and I'm not talking about any conflict or anything as serious as making a formal complaint, but a space for, like City Hall, for anything to be lit up. Um, that's got to be difficult to decide what's a go and what's not a go, though. Yeah, I think we you know we, the staff will use their judgment, and um, you know the process that Sarah outlined uh, about this going through the mayor's office and then to city staff and city staff signing off on it. Uh, you know, of course, they use judgment about which event uh, this was. But, I mean, I, I hear you. We wouldn't want um, something inappropriate, of course, to be um, uh, projected onto City Hall or any other civic building. But this is their only Canadian concert uh, stop in, in Canada. So this is a really big deal. Uh, this is an iconic band. There's tons of fans, and it's going to really be great for, for Vancouver. Now, I don't know the process here, and one of you can probably uh, let me know how this ends up working. But now there is a complaint that has been launched with the Office of the Integrity Commissioner. Uh, does that get kicked out? Uh, is it going to cost any time or any money to go through any process beyond this? Uh, so that complaint has been officially concluded. It was found to be without merit. Uh, there was found to be no breach of the code of conduct and no misuse of city property. Uh, so it's now completed. Uh, council does have an Integrity Commissioner on staff and on a retainer. So um, it uh, costs the taxpayers when these complaints come forward and 
and sort of light of the fact that you're using the time and expertise of that integrity commissioner, um, who is a third-party resource to the city, um, but the complaint is officially completed now. Okay. And again, as I said, found to be without merit. So person hours uh, certainly involved. There was a, a cost if uh, if you start telling that up, and that is all part of a cost of doing city work. But uh, the ruling was, uh-uh, uh, there's no conflict there. I appreciate yeah. the time from both of you. Glad that this is resolved. And uh, what an interesting one at that. Sarah Kirby Young, Peter Meisner, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can always listen to the jazz joe hall show live monday to friday from 3 to 6 p.m on 980 cknw and connect with me on twitter at jazz joe hall bc talk to you next time